When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is short. I love you. Love is forever. Will you marry me? But you never know what the future holds. Until it hits. Go get my phone book, will you? Get my phone book. Get those names of those guys from NASA. Excuse me, am I wearing a sign that says, Carl Slave? Go get my goddamn phone book! What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Doesn't matter where it hits. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. We spend $250 billion a year on defense. And here we are. The fate of the planet is in the hands of a bunch of retards I wouldn't trust with a potato gun. The difficulty in detecting asteroids depends mostly on the size of the asteroid. The smaller, obviously the most difficult it is to detect it. An asteroid the size of the Rose Bowl feels its way toward the Earth right now. What is the air blast that's produced as you dump a lot of energy into the atmosphere in one spot? There's this huge blast wave that's created and will flatten a lot of houses and buildings in every direction. And we can predict how large will that zone of damage be and try to get a handle on what the casualties would be. Russian scientists warn that our planet's gravity could change the asteroid's path. NASA scientists say there is a minuscule, little bitty chance of that happening. Despite the fact that we've got all this technology and all this knowledge and, and scientific understanding, we put fair worse that, that our civilization would be more prone to just catastrophically implode because we've each become very, very specialists in what we do. You're NASA for crying out loud. You put a man on the moon. You're geniuses. You're, you're the guys that think his shit up. I'm sure you got a team of men sitting around somewhere right now just thinking shit up and somebody backing them up. You're telling me you have a backup plan that these eight Boy Scouts right here, that is the world's hope? That's what you're telling me? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Hello there, and welcome to Science-ish. Award-winning podcast, Science-ish. Award-winning? What yes. award did it win? It won a silver award <laughs> at the British Podcast Awards. Thank you very much indeed. I'm Rick Edwards. I'm joined, as ever, by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Dr. Michael Brooks looks very happy at the mention of our silver award. Award-winning for the first time since 1987. That's me. What was your last award for? The Swindon College Senior Merit Award. And what was that uh, awarded on the basis of? Best performance in the A-levels at the college. Oh, really? Hell yeah. And in, in Swindon, so what did you get? A couple of Bs and a C? <laughs> Just a pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've still got my certificate. Rightly so. But obviously now it's all about the Silver Award at the British Podcast Awards. <laughs> so the show, as you obviously know by now, we take a work of fiction. It is always a film and then we ask three big questions big scientific questions about the content of the film this episode we're going to be looking at stone cold classic armageddon which amazingly you've only watched for the first time this morning I literally got up at first how five. have you avoided watching armageddon i don't know it's one of those films that's in your psyche it's like you know the plot 
Yeah. Don't you? I've known the plot all, all along. I know who's in it. I know how it goes. I know the bloody song at the end. Yeah. And so I, I guess I thought, what's the point of actually watching it? But I did sit down and watch it at half past five this morning and thoroughly enjoyed it's it. It's enjoyable, isn't it? Start your day with Bruce Willis on a, uh, on a nuclear-powered asteroid destroyer. Yeah, I mean, it's not an especially catchy tagline, is it? <laughs> <laughs> the plot is so basic, it, it barely even stands up to me sort of going over it. But there's a massive asteroid... It's, it's heading for Earth. We need to get rid of it, otherwise it's going to kill everyone. And the only people who can do it are a load of roughnecks who are expert drillers. Yeah. I think it's the only film where the sort of big heroes are drillers, people who can just <laughs> drill really deep. Yeah. And Bruce Willis is the best driller in the world. Obviously. And him and his mob go up in space, get on an asteroid, drill down into it, pop a nuclear bomb in the middle, et voila, it blows it up, and the, and the two huge pieces miss the Earth. Interesting detail by just 400 miles on either side, which is very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's a lovely film. Yeah, it's a great watch. Telemetry is up and running. Five miles. Oh, my God. This is space. We're just in the beginning part of space. We, we haven't even gotten to outer space yet. Roger Houston, we have a visual on the Russian space station initiating retro burn. So there's obviously... Only one direction we can go in with this episode, and that is space and the asteroids within. Before we get into the questions, nice to have a little background lesson about exactly what an asteroid is and where they come from. And we put that to Dr. Megan Brooks-Sayal, a staff physicist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Asteroids are the bits and pieces left over from planet formation in our solar system. And they consist of a very diverse population. There's ones that are more iron enriched, ones that are more water enriched, various combinations of rock, iron, and water to make it simple. And they range in size from the, the smallest thing you can imagine that would um, be just few, a few meters across to ones that are hundreds of kilometers across. So there's, there's a huge variety of, of asteroids in our solar system. 90 million miles from Earth, the Hubble telescope has picked up an incredible image. It looks like a comet, but astronomers think it's the moment of impact when one asteroid hit another. Most asteroids reside in the asteroid belt far away from the Earth between Mars and, and Jupiter so that they, they pose no threat to the Earth, but occasionally they are perturbed by Jupiter's gravity or by the Yarkovsky effect when they absorb and re-radiate light in a way that provides a small force. They can be gently nudged into an orbit that crosses the Earth's orbit that becomes um, and makes them a near-Earth object. And near-Earth objects or NEOs are the ones that we, we worry about when thinking about the asteroid impact hazard. It's so fairly simple, then. It's just bits that haven't well, been used yeah, to make planets. Bits that are not planets. So, yeah. yeah, left over from the formation of the solar system yeah. about four and a half billion years ago. Are there asteroids coming in from outside our solar system? Is that possible? No, I mean, they're all bound. So within our solar system, you've got these things that are basically, you know, they're in the gravity-fired orbit, orbits, yeah. yes. So the asteroids are in a kind of circular orbit quite a long way out. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the comets, which are more icy, less sort of metallic materials, a bit more dusty, I guess, break up more easily. Mm. Uh, and they sort of go on a big elliptical orbit, sort of close to the sun and then away from the sun. And they, they do much more sort of dramatic sort of move swooping. through the solar system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, swooping, if you like. Yeah, I do like. Because you've got all these things in the asteroid belt, some of which are enormous, though not as enormous as the one in the film, which they no. say is the size of Texas. Yeah. What's the biggest one, then, that's up there? So the biggest one is called Ceres, and it's about 580 miles across. So, so that is an absolute unit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, don't mess with that one. But, you know, the Texas is what, like 790 miles long? Mm. You know, if that was coming in, yeah, yeah. you'd probably know about that quite quickly. So, you know, they're all orbiting around and occasionally they get knocked out of their orbit by, you know, conjunction of planets or whatever. That means that there's a gravitational effect that just pulls them out of their normal orbit and then they can head towards us and that's when we're in trouble. 
Is there any other way that they can get deflected out of orbit? Well, there are tiny effects. There's this thing called the Yarkovsky effect, which yeah. comes from uh, cooling and heating. And basically, it sort of gives it a little push because of the radiation that it gives out. Yeah, so there are tiny, small effects. But the main thing is just you know, understanding the sort of gravitational potentials you know, from all the planets that are going on. Obviously, it, when they um, do get deflected off and they become near-Earth objects, or they can do, that's when it gets quite lively, isn't it? Yeah, that's when you have to keep a close eye on them. Mm. Yeah, the things that are coming somewhere near us. That needs to be our first question then. So how do we detect asteroids on a collision course for Earth? In order to detect hazardous asteroids, there's a huge collection of different observatories, mostly on the Earth. Um, there's, there's some that are space-based too, but most of the new discoveries come from telescopic observations on the Earth. Uh, some of the biggest contributors are the Catalina Sky Survey in Arizona and Pan-STARRS Telescope in Hawaii. And they're always looking for new asteroids and existing asteroids to follow up on, on their orbits and refine what we know about their position and their orbits so we know where they're going to be in the future and if there's any small probability of an impact in the future. So there, it's a it's a very collaborative enterprise to, to hunt asteroids and all of these different observatories share information with each other to make sure that everyone's working together to collect the very best possible information about these asteroids and how to characterize them. Dan, we didn't see this thing coming. Well, our object collision budget's a million dollars. That allows us to track about 3% of the sky. And begging your pardon, sir, but it's a big-ass sky. And the ones this morning? Uh, those are nothing. Uh, they're the size of basketballs and uh, Volkswagens, things like that. Is this going to hit us? We're efforting that as we speak, sir. The difficulty in detecting asteroids depends mostly on the size of the asteroid. The smaller, obviously, the most difficult it is to detect it. My name is Claudio Bombardelli. I'm part of the Space Dynamics Group of the Technical University of Madrid, based in Madrid, Spain. I think that right now we have trouble detecting asteroids, let's say, below 100, 150 meters. Uh, we can detect some of them, but not the, all of them. Whereas, for example, if you think about a very large asteroid, like one kilometer, I'm pretty sure that you can see pretty much almost all of them with the detection capability we have today. So it's a matter of increasing ground-based uh, detection facility and trying to decrease the minimum size of, of the asteroids that we can see. The other issue is about uh, the position with respect to the, to the sun. And, and that depends on, for example, from what side, with respect to the sun, they are coming towards us. Of course, if they come from the, from the direction of the sun, our telescopes will be blinded and, and, and we cannot see them. For example, the Chelyabinsk impact, the famous small asteroids that, that hit Chelyabinsk uh, a few years ago, that was, I believe, impossible to see at the time he, 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 he hit Earth because it was coming during the day. Yeah, so that's a worry then, isn't it? <laughs> if we're sort of fine as long as they come at night, but if one's coming during the daytime, then basically it's the classic don't look up at the sun, you can't see anything. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly an asteroid sort of emerges but, but, you know, there's out There's a whole of army of people who are looking, you know, using telescopes, amateur astronomers, whatever, looking to find some anomalous object in their field of view. And then if they see it moving in a way that's like, it's not like a star, it's not a planet, then they can phone up NASA and sort of say, you know, I found something, is it on your list? You know, it's not like, you know, we've only got one day to do it. So, you know, yes, you can't see them during the day. And yes, they might be coming from the direction of the sun, mm. which does make it difficult. But we're at least growing the list. I'm trying to be positive about this. You know, yeah. I don't want to scare it anyone. It feels like we should be able to spot them. Yeah. Even if we don't. I mean, isn't there a way of doing it without doing it visually? Well, you can use radar, but yeah. you, that doesn't go very far. So you can't yeah. see, see very far with radar. Yeah. And the ideal is to see as far as possible. So they reckon there's about a million asteroids in our solar system. Mm -hmm. And we've detected about 10,000 of those. So, oh great! So, yeah. um, so if we could detect 1 the rest, of the way there. so once you've detected them, you mm. can track them and you know what they're going to do. But 
at the moment, you know, there's obviously a lot that we haven't seen. So uh, apparently there's only 10% of the sort of big world-ending kind of size objects that we haven't yet found, they reckon. Okay. Uh, my Don Bombardelli mentioned... Great name for really somebody. Really good name. <laughs> Impacts. Mentioned Chelyabinsk. Yes. So that was recent, That was it? 2013. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a 20-metre asteroid. I want to see that coming, ideally. They didn't see it coming, though, did Real they? Real shame. Nobody saw it coming. Um, but yeah, it exploded in the sky and mm. about sort of 30 kilometres up and released energy equivalent to 500 kilotons of TNT. That's a lot. Yeah, I don't really have any concept of what that means, though. I, I don't know what... I, you wouldn't want what, to be under it. I mean, it blew out... Loads no, of I'm not windows. saying I want to be under but, it. But, you know, you imagine it, it's 30 kilometres up and yeah. it blew out windows and, and everything else. And then was there sort of fragments falling all over the show? Yeah. Fun. Mm. Good Quite good. Nice souvenir, though, isn't it? Yeah. Assuming it doesn't, like, spike you in the head. <laughs> yeah. If lands near you, get yeah, it on the mantelpiece. you're kind of done at that point, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. I thought it was quite exciting when it happened, I have to say. I like the fact that in Armageddon, there's a hobbyist guy who is doing exactly what you're talking about yeah. like looking at the sky and he's pumped because he gets to name the asteroid uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. he spotted it and names after his wife because she's a life-sucking bitch so hang on just to just to <laughs> clarify that Brooksy is that a line from the film or that, is is that... A, that is a line from okay, the film good, yeah that's, good. that's not a comment on marriage just in any sense. checking just checking but one more thing the person that finds her gets the namer right yeah, yes that's right that's right I want to name her Dottie after my wife She's a vicious, life-sucking bitch from which there is no escape. So r- radar then, basically, okay over short distances. But yeah, no good over long not distances. great. Yeah, Have we got any other techniques for spotting? Not really, no. We just need to, to keep putting the you know, telescopes, pointing them at the sky and keep looking. And we feel like we're actually going to be okay. If there's a big NEO, we'll probably spot it. Yes, let's say that that makes us okay. It doesn't really, does it? Seeing it coming is only half the battle. Yeah, so on to our second question then, which is if we do spot it, then what, guys? (laughs) Given enough warning time before an asteroid impact, the preferred method is to deflect it, so just to nudge it gently. The two main methods to achieve a deflection that we study in my group are kinetic impact, just crashing a spacecraft into it and delivering momentum that way. Or if it's a larger asteroid or the warning time is shorter, sometimes kinetic impact is not sufficient to move it off of an Earth-impacting trajectory. And so you could use a standoff nuclear explosion which is much more mass efficient in terms of how much momentum you can deliver to the asteroid per unit mass of the of the spacecraft. So both of those can be quite effective depending on the warning time and, and the size of the asteroid itself. If the warning time is shorter, sometimes a deflection becomes impossible. And in those cases, the preferred method would be an intentional disruption where you thoroughly shred the asteroid and distribute the fragments very thoroughly so that they would miss the Earth and not be a hazard. You should know that the president's scientific advisors are suggesting that a nuclear blast could change this asteroid's trajectory. I know the president's chief scientific advisor. We're at MIT together. And in a situation like this, you... I really don't want to take the advice from medical to see minus in astrophysics. The president's advices are um, wrong. I'm right. Hitting the rock from the outside won't do the job. Imagine a firecracker in the palm of your hand. You set it off, what happens? You burn your hand, right? You close your fist around the same firecracker and set it off. <laughs> your wife's going to be opening your ketchup bottles the rest of your life. Are you suggesting that we blow this thing up from the inside? That's exactly what I'm saying. How? We drill. We bring in the world's best deep core driller. So destroying an asteroid completely requires exploding, detonating a bomb close to it. And basically what you need to do is to launch from from Earth uh, a spacecraft 
carrying a nu nuclear weapon and rendezvousing with the asteroid so that you can detonate this bomb and, and hopefully you, 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 can, you can turn the, the asteroid into pieces. This practice is quite dangerous because you can understand that flying nuclear devices is, extre is extremely dangerous and uh, problematic politically. Is actually not permitted by the space treaty. Uh, so <laughs> there are there are a number of uh, practical and legal uh, obstacles uh, to that. Personally, I think that completely obliterating an asteroid uh, should be considered only as a last resort. Yeah, I mean, I take his point, but it's less exciting, isn't it? If you're just deflecting <laughs> also, it off course. Also, if it was a first resort, then it's job done, isn't it? So you think uh, Bombardelli's wrong? Well, what if all the gentle stuff doesn't work? You're leaving yourself much less time all the time, aren't you? I mean, the clock is ticking. We're trying to push it gently, you know, fly a spacecraft into it or something, mm. do a little nuclear blast, and it's not working. All of a sudden, now we've got 10 days less to actually blow the thing apart. But he does make a valid point about the sort of political, logistical stuff where you're not allowed to fly a bomb into space. Uh, yeah, I, I like this idea of not being allowed to do it. And obviously, if the North Koreans said, hold on, guys, we're going to save the world. We'll take this. We'll take this one. <laughs> like, you would, um... you, you'd be like, okay, you're going to fly a nuclear bomb into space and we're going to trust you that that's just going to hit the asteroid. But if the Chinese did it, would we trust them? Why is it we trust the Americans? Because they're on our side, because they're the good guys. And this whole sort of outer space treaty is very theoretical, really. Although loads of people have signed up to it. What does it say? It basically says... Everyone behave yourself out in space. Yeah, yeah. You can put normal weapons in space, but no nuclear weapons in space. No mass destruction right. kind of right. things. And no claiming like the resources on, on the moon, for instance, which people are flagrantly disregarding in their planning at the moment. So, you know, the Outer Space Treaty says that the moon belongs to everyone. But the Chinese have basically announced an intention to mine the moon. And the Americans are sort of saying, well, you know, first up there really kind of gets to claim this frontier land. Yeah, it's like the Wild West. Yeah, exactly. Get out there. So who's to say that actually if somebody had the capability of putting a nuclear bomb in space, they wouldn't do it just because there's a treaty? But presumably you say that it's kind of falling on the Americans. So if there was a, a big old NEO coming towards us, my sense is it wouldn't be that dissimilar to what you see in the film. Just a load <laughs> of Na NASA guys going, oh, shit, what are we going to do though, fellas? Are people planning for this? They are a little bit, yeah. You could argue that they're under-resourced, you know, they're not prepared to quite go as far as you want them to go. But I think, you know, it's very difficult to get politicians right behind this because it's one of those really extreme events that you sort of think, well, it might never happen, so why would I allocate loads and loads of resources to it? Yeah, I still wouldn't mind us being prepared, though. Once you've got the plan, you've got the plan. But nobody can really agree what the plan is or what the plan should be. So you've got this idea of you know, exploding a, a nuclear bomb just next to the asteroid just to deflect it off course. Yeah. And that gets you so far, but you have to deflect it quite a long way. And if it's big, then that's, you know, it's not even going to feel it. So if it's big yeah. and threatening, it's got to be a big explosion. You know, and there's ideas of like throwing a spacecraft at it, so you just like knock give it, it a nudge, yeah, give it like a nudge. bumper cars, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to imagine that if it's of any size at all, that's going to make a big difference. Those aren't the only two options available, though. They're sort of steering your spaceship in or, or detonating the nuclear weapon, are they? No, there is more. There is more. Our first feasibility plan was to use a spread focus laser generator to heat the object to the point of fracture. That's like shooting a BB gun at a freight train dock. Uh, some of us have got this idea. We want to land a craft, deploy solar sails. You'll have a great big canopy. Solar winds will be caught by these mylar sails. Some of the other methods for deflecting asteroids are what we would call a slow push, where you deliver the momentum slowly over longer periods of time. That requires that whatever your, your method of deflection is, that it is able to function without failure for a longer period of time. So that represents some form of new operational risk. None of these methods have been tested before in space. However, I think they really capture people's imagination because some of them are, are very creative and un unusual sounding. Some of the ones I can think of off the top of my head are trying to enhance the Yarkovsky effect, the 
absorption and re-emission of, of photons by changing the reflectance of the asteroid, so essentially painting part of it white or a lighter color. So uh, that would take a, a long time to, to build up to a, a, a significant deflection, but it, it's possible. Okay. Come on, guys. We got to come up with something realistic here. We got 18 days. That's 431 hours, 15 minutes and 18 seconds. Time's a luxury we don't have. What? There's also techniques using lasers or ion beams. Here we work on new deflection concept, which is called the ion beam deflection concept or ion beam shepherd, which consists of firing a stream of high velocity ions emitted by a source on board of a spacecraft nearby the asteroids so that the, the ions hit the asteroid surface like a, like a gentle blow and continuously do so for, for a number of months or, or up to years. By transmitting a small and continuous force, the asteroid trajectory is slightly modified. And as time goes by, the final result is that you can actually achieve the asteroid missing the Earth at the predicted time of impact. A gravity tractor is another method that works over a longer period of time, and that's just bringing a large amount of mass very near the asteroid and having that mass gently pull the asteroid away from its, its current orbit. And over many years, that can build up to a significant deflection and those, those, those are just a sample of some of the, the ones that are talked about at, at some of the conferences. We need to get ourselves invited to one of these conferences, Brooksy. <laughs> and stand up and chat. tell them. Stop messing about with the little things. I like think, painting I mean, it white. slow push, sort of just giving it a slow push over a number of years with ions or yeah. gravity tracks or whatever. It's not going to make for a great film. No, no. And that whole painting, it, you know, with titanium dioxide. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing it, <laughs> the Armageddon sequel, which is like, okay, last time we used Bruce Willis. Now, get me the best painted decorators <laughs> in the world right now. And he just flied them up. And then they're, obviously they'll say it'll take six weeks and it takes them three months. Yeah. Just up there, <laughs> just with their rollers, just painting this asteroid. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a funny film. Oh, you also need time for these things, don't you? That's the problem. So you've got to get there yeah. far enough away yeah. that you've got time to like put your coat of paint on it, probably do undercoat first, I presume. Otherwise, you know, the, the top coat will start peeling and then you'll yeah, be in trouble. Listen, these are the best painter decorators in oh, the world. Okay. They're going to know right. about undercoats, bro. Right, so just right. leave them to get on so, with so, But, you know, give them six months to do that. That means you've got to do it a long, long way out. And getting out to that asteroid that early is nigh on impossible. What we want to be doing, actually is getting up there now when they're just safe in the asteroid belt and start painting, start painting them. Painting yeah, them painting them ready. <laughs> as they orbit the sun, just like there's a team of people. They, yeah. They've got 10 million asteroids to do. Uh, we haven't quite broken the back of it yet. <laughs> We've done three. Can you send up some more paint, please? Also, the slight flaw of that plan is obviously by painting them, they would deflect them off and then oh, you'd do yeah, trouble. Yeah. <laughs> no, not that side. <laughs> you definitely said the left. <laughs> yeah, I meant my left. <laughs> so, you know, they're trying to use things like the Yarkovsky effect, which is because asteroids tumble. Yeah. So, so sometimes they're facing the sun and sometimes they're not. So one yeah. side gets hot yeah. effectively. And yeah. then when it's facing away from the sun, it then radiates off the heat. Yeah. And that radiation pushes back on the asteroid. So it sort of yeah. deflects it very slightly. So the painting is like gives you radiation pressure. So solar radiation bouncing off. Yeah. Uh, again, it gives you deflection. But they're talking about like if you've got a 68 million ton asteroid, right? Mm. And you, you, know, you account for the Yarkovsky effect. You're talking about like adding the weight of three grapes on it. Mm. So it's a very, very small amount. So, you know, you might need a billion years to make any difference at all. Mm. They, they say that you can maybe get a 100 miles difference in its orbit or its trajectory over you know, a dozen years. Mm. And you know, we're unlikely to have a dozen years, really, to, to do this kind of thing. Gravity tractor sounds brilliant. Really, it's just parking a spacecraft next to it. Mm -hmm. So that the extra little gravitational pull again nudges it slightly off course. It needs to be a big old spacecraft. It wouldn't have to be huge, wouldn't it? 
So we're not impressed by any of these ideas. What I am impressed by is a thing called the Hypervelocity Asteroid Intercept Vehicle. Who will be next to launch man in space? Me! Hang on, say that again. Hypervelocity Asteroid yeah. Intercept Vehicle. And the idea is basically to use a two-part space vehicle because you've got to go really fast to get up there to give you yeah. your time to, you yeah. know, to detonate yeah. the thing. First bit hits really fast, creates a big impact crater in the asteroid. Lovely. And then the second bit is the nuclear device which goes into the crater and blows the thing up, a la Bruce Willis. Get your electronic ideal countdown now wherever good toys are sold. Can they get funding for it? No. They, yeah, they, I guess they... it's sort of who wants to pay for that, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Well, I would if I had the cash. Kickstarter? Maybe. Maybe that's the way forward. Mm. A Kickstarter for humanity, the whole of humanity. Yeah. So they're talking about having, you know, they want $500 million to sort of test fly it, which doesn't seem like that much to me. How are they going to test it, though? Well, in space, presumably. Yeah, but on what? I'm not sure. Hmm. They're going to need All to right, iron there's, these... There's, there's a lot of they, holes in listen, the... Yeah, there's before a lot they put the Kickstarter video together, <laughs> they're just going to need to think some of those things through. For God's sakes, think about what you're doing. Why are you listening to someone that's 100,000 miles away? We're here. Nobody down there can help us. If we don't get this job done, then everybody's gone. One minute. I've been drilling holes in the earth for 30 years, and I have never, never missed a depth that I have aimed for. And by God, I am not going to miss this one. I will make 800 feet. 42 seconds. But I can't do it alone, Colonel. I need your help. You swear on your daughter's life, on my family's, that you can hit that mark. I will make 800 feet. I swear to God I will. And let's turn this bomb off. So we've sort of, like, we've we've got it covered-ish, haven't we? Like, we've got some ideas about what <laughs> we've done. Um, yeah. Um, no, not, not us as in our podcast, as in scientists generally have got this covered. Oh, okay. All right. A little bit. Yeah. No, I, I, well, they can spot the problem. Yeah. I'm not sure we've got the solutions lined up properly yet. Yeah, no, I take your point. We, we might be fucked. So I think that should probably be our third and, and final question, actually, which is if we spot an NEO, but we can't do anything about it, i.e. a massive asteroid hurling towards us, what happens when the asteroid hits? And that is something that Dr. Megan knows all about. To study the effects of an asteroid impact here at Earth, we, we first of all can look to history and look to asteroid impact events that we've observed even over the last couple of generations here at Earth. Today, that's pretty much what happened in Russia. A meteor the size of a city bus streaked across the sky over the Ural Mountains. NASA reporting it appeared brighter than the sun. So Chelyabinsk at around 20 meters is kind of at the end of this, a smaller size scale, and we know that that deposited most of its energy in the atmosphere, created a big air blast. Most of the damage was from blown out windows, broken glass. Luckily, no one was killed in that event. It ripped through the air like a blade through fabric, triggering sonic booms and an immense shockwave when it exploded. If we go up to something larger in size, like the Tunguska event in the early 20th century, which also occurred in Russia in an uninhabited part of Siberia, that was around 70 meters or so, and that mostly deposited its energy in the atmosphere, but it flattened an area that was 2,000 square kilometers in size. So if that occurred over a city, that could have been devastating. And it, it wasn't that large of an object. There's, there's many, many 70-meter-sized objects that are still unobserved, and their, their orbits are uncharacterized at this time. And so we know that even the small ones can do a lot of damage. The immediate impact would be of a gigantic shock wave going out maybe 50 to 100 miles, then firestorms going out to hundreds of miles beyond that. Firestorms. And then meteorites raining back down on the planet Earth. So the devastation would be on the order of uh, 500 to 1,000 miles. Think of a bullseye, a bullseye containing half the United States. 
That's the potential impact. And again, it's a very tiny probability, but we're watching it very carefully. The second way in which we can study the effects of asteroid impacts is through numerical simulations. Using the same types of codes that we use to model asteroid deflection, we can model what would happen when an asteroid impacts the Earth, what are the thermal effects, how big is the fireball, and what is the zone that is really affected by very high temperatures, and what is also the overburden, the air blast that's produced as you dump a lot of energy into the atmosphere in one spot. There's this huge blast wave that's created and will flatten a lot of houses and buildings in every direction. And we can predict how large will that zone of damage be and try to get a handle on what the casualties would be. The bigger it is, the more trouble you're in. Mm. So, you know, if you've got something that's 60 miles across, then you're looking at wiping out life on Earth, pretty mm. much. But uh, like the Tixa Club one that, that did for the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, that was about seven or eight miles across. Yeah. Which, in asteroid terms, is big, but not, it's that, not big. that big. is it? No, no. I guess the thing about that is it didn't wipe out all life. It wiped out the big ones, really. Yeah, and created quite a big sort of nuclear winter effect, didn't it? So, you know, you have this thing that comes in, the impact, you get this massive shock wave... Basically, if you're if you're in the vicinity within a few miles, you get a massive air pulse hit you and burst your lungs and you're dead mm. from that. And then you've got the whole sort of fireball impact where you've got, again, you've just got this massive air pulse. You've got the everything thrown up in the atmosphere, blocking out the sun. So, you know, you've got twilight for a year, basically. Yeah, or uh, longer than that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess it depends. And you're throwing up loads of CO2 into the atmosphere. So you get darkness, you know, plants not growing, so everything dies, no crops. Then you get massive climate change going on, so all kinds of disturbance. It's not great. Even if it's not a huge asteroid, it can have, you know, a massive global effect. What's protecting us from damage then? The atmosphere is doing a bit of a job for us, isn't it? Yeah, so it's the thing will slow down massively in the atmosphere and, and heat up, so it starts to break up in the atmosphere. And that's the main defence we've got effectively, is that it has to penetrate through the atmosphere, so it will lose energy and slow down a little bit. And it, you know, if it fragments enough, then you're in a position where you're in a better place for survival. Aside from the, the one 65 million years ago, what other big ones have we kind of been able to look at in a historical record? There's one, uh, the Barringer Crater in Arizona, which was 50,000 years ago, and that was about 45 metres across, about 150 foot. Okay. So fairly big, but it didn't kill everything at all. Everything within about a sort of three or four mile radius was dead. Yeah. And everything in about eight mile radius actually, yeah, was pretty much dead. I mean, if you saw it come down, you're probably going to be dead. Yeah, yeah. You got massive winds, you got like a thousand mile an hour winds or something like that. So obviously quite tricky to, to get through all of this. But sort of city-wide scale sort of destruction, but not, you know, the whole of... Earth, you know, we talked about Chicks Club, uh, and we talked as well about the um, Tunguska event in yeah. 1908. Again, pretty devastating if you were in the locality, but it didn't change life on Earth. So the kind of thing that is, you know, really big and changed life on Earth is like one every million years, that kind of mm. rate of impact. So that's not too bad. Apparently, there's one that's sort of about the size of a car every year hits Earth. Oh, really? Yeah, can you imagine that? That's fine, isn't it? I, I, yeah, I'd quite like to sort of see that happen, really. Well, how distance. close could I get? I could get relatively close you to get that. Relatively right, close. I? Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to be right under it, obviously. Not really, no. But of course, there's no guarantee of when any of them are going to come because it's all chaotic orbits out of solar system. So you can't predict anything. So the fact that it's, you know, one every million years the size of the one that killed the dinosaurs off doesn't mean that you have to wait a million years. No. And 65 million years ago means we're quite sort of overdue, you could argue. Yeah, you could argue that, couldn't you? What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. How big are we talking? Sir, our best estimate is 97.6 billion. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. Yeah, yes, sir. What kind of damage are we... Damage? Total, sir. It's what we call a global killer the end of mankind doesn't matter where it hits nothing would survive not even bacteria my god in the film they say that 
it's so big, and it is big, isn't it, in the film, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. it will wipe out all life, including bacteria. Yeah, it's water off a duck's back for bacteria, yeah, isn't it? Bacteria yeah. are just like, oh, relax. It's just a bit hot. <laughs> it's a bit hot, come yeah, on. Yeah, and there's plenty of bacteria that like a bit of extreme environment. Isn't yeah. It? Uh, so, I mean, it's fairly... Uh, oh, if we get hit by a big one, then it's curtains, isn't it? But if we get hit by a medium-sized one, there's a chance of survival, and I, for one, will be back in myself, I think. Would you now? I think so, yeah. I think I've just got the nous to... What have you got? Well, I'm hiding underground, first of all. Uh, how are you getting underground? What do you mean? Ever heard the phrase, the tube? <laughs> you got... and everyone else? Yeah. Well, well yes, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> but safety in numbers, that, that applies, doesn't it? But, I mean, do you think you'd survive? I think I've got a good chance, yeah. Yeah. See, I just... I've read I the book. Know. What do you mean you've read the book? I know how to survive. I've read the book. What book? The Knowledge. Oh, is this your mate? Yeah. yeah this is one of the best books ever. On how, basically, How to Survive an Apocalypse. So, Lewis, I'm waking up after an <laughs> apocalypse... Right, you know, I'm kind of coming round. You're waking up the morning after with well, a hangover from the night before when the, the world hangover ended. from the asteroid before that's just <laughs> hit. So this is Lewis Dartnell, the knowledge. Get yourself a copy, put it in the bunker. Yeah. What am I going to do? Where do I go first? You pretty much want to get out of the cities as quickly as possible because a city is a is a very artificial bubble of technology. It doesn't work if it doesn't have electricity and water pressure and gas flowing through the pipe. So get yourself out of the cities, which also after an asteroid strike and lots of people dying are probably going to be quite unpleasant, smelly things anyway. That, that, um, let me just stop you for a bit, because I'm, I'm thinking, if I'm already in a city, I'm thinking, you know, there's stuff here at least. If I go out into the countryside, you know, I'm not going to eat grass, you know, I'm not going to be foraging berries. You know, surely there's stuff in the city that I can actually use. We can, you can always scavenge and forage from cities. You can send reclaiming parties back into the bones of the city to dig up what you need. But as you start trying to recover your own society, you, you can't do agriculture in the tarmac and asphalt smeared ground of, of a city. You want to get out onto some nice, fertile farmlands, agricultural fields to start growing things for yourself. And during the, the grace period before that, we get to coast on what's been left behind from, from the, the old dead civilization. Yeah, you'll be scavenging uh, cans of food from, from supermarkets and, and keeping yourself going for as long as possible while you relearn all of these just basic skills and, and practical knowledge that, you know, our grandparents used to have, but, but, but we don't anymore. We've lost in our, in our modern world. We've become a little bit too reliant on the convenience of supermarkets and popping how, down How long could I live from a supermarket? So I calculated this for the book as a thought experiment. If I were to lock you in a supermarket and throw away the key, how long would you survive Perfect. for before you'd, you'd either eaten all the food or gone off before you yeah. get around to eating it? And the answer I came up with was 55 years is how long a supermarket <laughs> I'm, I'm good. could support That's one person. That's me done. Or 63 years if you're happy to eat all the canned dog food and cat food. But I mean, the point behind that is, is a frivolous example. But the, the fundamental truth I'm trying to dig down to there is that we have become so reliant on, on popping down a supermarket to feed ourselves. But the reason we've been able to build our modern world and these incredibly dense and popular cities we live in today are because we've been able to apply our understanding and knowledge to stop food being eaten by bacteria and mould before a person is ready to eat it. He has a spectacular view of the mountains, a family man who lives in a beautiful neighbourhood in Utah. But Peter Larson has a very dark view of what the world has in store for us. We take a long ride with him into the mountains. Daylight turns to sundown, sundown to darkness. And then we arrive. Outside the bunker, he has barrels of water, 2,000 gallons. Inside, a food supply worthy of a small grocery. Cookies, Ritz, macaroni and cheese, and the green giant green beans. This is beef jerky. Okay. And so I Why store... so much beef jerky? We love beef jerky. So my, my scientific training was in quantum physics, right? So I'm not even sure how I would first go about, say, securing a decent water source and making sure that was healthy. What, what would I do? Yeah, so with a... With Basic store of information, the sort of stuff you don't want to get lost to history again and, and trigger another dark ages. And one of the things you would hope would never get lost is this idea of germ theory. Why is it that people get sick and die and diseases pass from one person to the other? You can now exploit that knowledge to stop yourself getting sick. And one really, really simple way of doing that is a technique known as SODIS or solar 
disinfection, which is being touted around the developing world by the World Health Organization. And all you need to do to use science to know for a fact that the water you're about to put your lips and drink isn't going to kill you, all you need is an empty plastic bottle. And you put your dodgy, suspect river water into that, leave it out in the sun. And because that plastic bottle has essentially constrained the water to be very shallow, the ultraviolet rays and sunshine can pass straight through it and kill or inactivate any germs in that water. You can come back to your bottle a day or two later and drink it and know that it's safe to do so. And it's that simple? It is that simple. One of the um, things that really impressed me about the knowledge really was that sense that I got when I was reading it that, shit, I don't know anything. <laughs> None of us do. I mean, no, that's, that's I, the I point of how the modern world Yeah, works. I mean, so all this stuff that I take for granted, I sort of think of myself as, you know, reasonably intelligent guy who kind of knows roughly how things work in, in terms of the natural forces and everything else. But actually, when it comes to our civilization. I probably know less than somebody who's living in the 16th century in terms of actually how to sort of survive when it's all stripped away. The thing I need is a supermarket and a, and a plastic bottle. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm all right. You're fine. I mean, basically, I'm fine with a supermarket. I haven't got 55 years left in me. No, God, no. So as long as I can eat for 55 years and no, no other buggers coming into my supermarket, that, I'm all right. That's the issue, isn't it? Is there enough supermarkets to go around? Yeah. And the answer is probably... Well, I guess then you're hoping that most people are dead and you have got your own supermarket. Yeah. Well, I, I would kill anyone else who comes into my supermarket. And eat them. And eat them. Fresh. Great stuff. Do you think you get bored? Yes, for sure. What are you going to do? Well... I'll tell you what I'd do. I would read the science-ish book out in October 2017. Oh, let's hope the asteroid strike <laughs> is after October because then yeah. we're sorted, aren't then, we? Then, then and in fact, fine. I mean, not just that, but my book, The Quantum Astrologer's Handbook, will also be out in October 2017. Mm. So I think not so, yeah, not, not so fussed about that one. No, really? Not really. <sighs> you wait. Are we over-reliant on technology? Is that, the, is that the issue? That seems to be what Lewis was driving at. Well, I think they call it dependency creep. So mm. none of us know how any of this stuff that we use every day actually works because we've outsourced the kind of the knowledge and the, the wisdom yeah. on that kind of stuff to everyone else. So I wouldn't say over-reliant. We're only over-reliant once we have an apocalypse scenario, aren't we? As things happen at the moment, everything works fine. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some engineer who knows how my mobile phone signal gets to me and that's all right. And he makes sure that, keeps happening you know there's doctors you know who will look after us and understand what's going on in our bodies hospitals are all running and that's fine it's when all that's taken away then we realize that actually you know we've constructed a civilization that is so complex that no one person understands it and then we're in slight trouble but presumably we could relearn a lot of the stuff yeah that we've Oh, it's interesting because Lewis is always talking about rebooting humanity and rebooting civilization. Mm. I'm just thinking about me, to be honest. I don't care whether the human race survives, you know, long term, surely. It's not my job. But, great, but... yeah, great attitude. <laughs> um, he, also, he also says that it's quite important to have a squad, though. Like, see if you can yeah. get a little crew of people together and you're yeah. more likely to survive. Yeah. Who are you picking? Well, probably somebody like Bear Grylls or Ray Mears, who's got a bit more meat on him, should he prove useless. You'd want a doctor, pharmacist probably would be ideal. Is the pharmacist going to be any use? Are they going to be able to start improvising treatments from available flora? Yeah, they might know like what plants are useful. Yeah, There'll be abandoned pharmacies all over the place, won't there? So you can presumably raid those as well yeah, yeah, if you leave true. the supermarket. Ideally, I'd want a supermarket with a pharmacy inside it. Yeah, that's the dream. That's perfect, isn't it? And a big DVD library. Yeah. <laughs> And a small electricity generator. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to start scoping out all the country's supermarkets now. I think I'd, I'd be looking for someone like Bruce Parry, you know, the guy who did Tribe. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think he'd be absolutely ideal. I'm quite yeah. interested in someone who's going to be good company. It's true, that is and, going to matter, isn't and it? And I'm not sure, with respect to Bear Grylls, where I'm getting much out of him. No? I don't think so. Bruce Parry, good guy. What about all your celebrity Love Island mates and people like that? I'm not sure they're surviving, are they? <laughs> I don't think so. No. Harry will do it. I know it. He doesn't know how to fail. We win, Tracy! Press it! 
So our three questions were, how do we detect asteroids? And it's, set, it's basically by looking, isn't it? Looking. Look through a telescope. Look up. Yeah. Or maybe if it's really close, use radar, but that's not especially effective. No. So, yeah, get your telescopes out. And then what do we do if we spot one coming towards Earth, so a, a near-Earth object? We blow it apart with a nuclear bomb. Well, no, that's not what they're saying. They say oh. we deflect it off course over a, over a number <sighs> of months, which I know is a poor film. Yeah. But that's Or we like paint it. Yeah, again, slow moving. <laughs> and then the third question, if we fail to deflect it off or blow it up and an asteroid hits, what happens basically about how big it is? If it's really big, then we're done. And if it's not that big, then we just have to try and start trying to rebuild society. Yeah, or not. Or if you're Brooksy, just focus on the fact that you're going to have a feast for 55 years. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Max Sanderson, with sound designed by Ivor Slayer-Manley. The assistant producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. This episode featured Dr. Megan brock Sial, Dr. Claudio Bombardelli, and Professor Lewis driver ah yeah cool and uh shower head big knife is that psycho okay dancing lady are, are those wolves dances with wolves they kind of look more like foxes or a hedgehog okay what's this uh a radio another wolf slash fox and lots of people radio fox group radio wolf bunch Radio Wolfgang. Radio Wolfgang emoji title, I love it. Smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio Wolfgang. Yeah, we're back on the air. The ghost town, but we don't care, we're mobile now. We're everywhere, yeah.